Welcome to Tech Deciphered. We bring you the entrepreneur and investor views on big tech, VC, and startup news, opinion pieces, and research. We decipher their meaning and add inside knowledge and context. We also share our insights and experience with you, with unique nuggets and lessons that we learned the hard way. No smoke and mirrors, no BS. Being nerds, we also discuss gadgets and pop culture news. Hi, I'm your co-host Nuno Gonçalves Pedro, entrepreneur and venture capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Chameleon and Strive Capital. And I am your co-host, Bertrand Schmidt, tech entrepreneur and co-founder of App Annie. We have both been in tech for almost 25 years. Nuno is based in Silicon Valley, while I am based in the greater Seattle area, having previously worked and lived in Europe and Asia. With Tech Deciphered, discover how the best entrepreneurs pitch, how investors think, and what are the deep trends underlying the tech industry. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at B. Schmidt and at NG Pedro. If you enjoyed the show, do us a favor. Subscribe, give us five stars, and or leave a review on Apple Podcasts app or your favorite app. This will help other people discover Tech Deciphered. Welcome to episode 27 of Tech Deciphered. We're going to address the tech landscape in Europe, focusing on the investment landscape as well as the startup landscape. We will go into the typical entrepreneurial approaches, as well as investment approaches in Europe, the mindsets, the tactics, the profiles, as well as the typical exits. We will then deep dive into the present state of Europe and how we see it evolve over time. Thank you, Nino. Good to be here today with you and to discuss this fascinating topic for us. We are both Europeans. Obviously, I'm French. You are from Portugal. We have seen the European landscape changing dramatically over the past 20, 25 years. So that would be very exciting to talk about this. I guess maybe we can start about controversies that happened a few months ago in June when The Economist had a big cover on the state of the investment in Europe and how Europe was really not doing much in the tech industry. Interestingly enough, there was a quick swift reply from the founder and CEO of Stripe, Patrick Collison, who is not just running Stripe from the US, but is also a European citizen being Irish. Yeah, his comment was basically saying all the points that you raise are great. I think you haven't really shown the case for optimism, right? Where there's a lot of great successful companies coming out of Europe. He was mentioning a few that are obviously runaway successes like Spotify, Klarna, N26, UiPath, Wise, and a few others. And he also obviously talks about Stripe and its role, although Stripe is more of an American company, to be honest, but Stripe in its role in working with very innovative companies in Europe as a counter position to The Economist's headline and main articles in that edition. So To be honest, I think he is on to something in saying there is a case for optimism that wasn't duly manifested in that edition of your magazine or newspaper, as they call it. It's very funny because they call The Economist still a newspaper, although it's, in my view, a magazine. Maybe you want to restate the position of The Economist? Yeah, the position of The Economist is that basically the U.S. has taken over, right? You have companies like Apple that are worth more, in their view, than 30 firms in the German blue chip DAX index combined. Obviously, we have Amazon, we have Microsoft, we have Google. All these are multi-trillion dollar companies now, actually. And so their point is, in some ways, Europe has lagged behind. I think their point was very focused also on the old Europe and where even the big emerging tech winners like SAP took a long time to get to fruition, took a long time to get to a certain scale, whereas It seemed like magically in the US, they popped up not just like mushrooms, but they also got to valuations that were ridiculous much faster. So that was their position. I don't think their position is totally wrong in some ways. And I believe it was an editor letter, actually. So it was a letter to the editor by Patrick Collins. And I guess if it wasn't Patrick, they wouldn't have published it. But it was a letter to the editor where he was saying, well, you sort of missed the optimism case. And we will talk about it a little bit later in our section two and beyond that there is definitely a lot of great stuff happening in Europe in terms of investment landscape, 
startups, swift changes in mindset from everyone concerned, all the key stakeholders around government, venture capital, private equity, the entrepreneurs themselves. So all of that, I think, is a case to be made. So it was a little bit of a semi-controversy because The Economist, obviously, is incredibly well-respected and rightfully so, publication. And Patrick is also a very well-respected entrepreneur, very smart, very sharp, someone who plays the nuances very well, obviously, with a very successful company in Stripe. But at the end of the day, I feel the case we're going to make around the European landscape is a little bit along the side of Patrick. There's a lot of optimism to be had around what's happening in Europe. Definitely. And let's not forget, Stripe might be the highest valued private company in the US at this stage. I'm not sure what the latest private valuation, but it's the biggest as far as I know. So he's not any random entrepreneur. It's not any random company. And for me, it felt What The Economy published was a vision of Europe five or ten years ago. It's a vision you could have of China maybe in 2000. But we start thinking, where is it going? And we will see the landscape in Europe has changed dramatically the past five years. And it's not coming from nowhere, obviously. There was a gradual build-up over the years, over decades. Let's not forget how many engineers, scientists are trained in Europe. So there was a huge base of talent that was in Europe, but that was not directed towards entrepreneurship, towards tech. Europe is starting from, I would say, a very strong base, and we'll talk more about it. But yeah, I think there has been a dramatic change in trajectories the past five years. I am personally pretty optimistic about where this is going. And actually, there are some data points where you could argue that Europe is actually the next big thing after US, after China. It might be Europe that's next in terms of how many unicorns are being shaped. And obviously, we don't just want to go to unicorns, but to real exits, be they IPO or acquisition. And that might be the one piece that's still a bit missing from Europe, but we can talk more about that later. And dipping a little bit into the past, and I won't go into the fact that I actually met John, Patrick's brother, and still very much involved in Stripe at a panel many moons ago and failed to invest in Stripe. So that's definitely very high on my list of antis. So I won't go into that. That's still very sore. But going into the entrepreneurial approach in Europe and what it has been over the last few decades, if we go back in time, Europe in some ways was built on small and medium businesses. If we look at the best of the best, the real companies that are the backbone of Europe, we typically talk a lot about the famous Mittelstand companies in Germany, the sort of small and medium business of Germany that really fuel the economy. And that whole engine that obviously some of them are cyclic, some of them are not so cyclic, but that have withstood the test of time. But rarely we've associated Europe with fundamental entrepreneurial behavior from a very high risk-taking perspective. If we look at the origins of a company like SAP, we see it as almost like the emergence of a really good software house that then at some point figured out that there was a productization around that they were doing, and then maybe a couple of decades later just hit product market fit at a scale probably never before seen in Europe and went to that next mile. So this whole notion of very rapid-growing tech companies, startups is a little bit more recent. The entrepreneurial approach in Europe has been to businesses that are self-sustaining, normally relatively revenue-generating, even from very early on in the development of the company, which is, we'll go back to that when we talk about the investment approach in Europe in the past versus today, is very different from the US. So this notion that you start making money earlier, that almost you're like cash flow positive earlier, that you need to generate cash earlier, And this is not only true in B2B, it's also true in B2C, which has been actually a big issue in particular in consumer plays in Europe because there isn't that much of a focus on traction and retention engagement of users. Actually, very early on, there's a focus on monetization. And so the entrepreneurial approach has been very much around that, around building solid businesses relatively early on. And there's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when you're building very solid businesses early on and you're very focused on monetization and making the company profitable you're missing growth. You're not being as aggressive on on growth as you should be for reasons maybe, Bertrand, you want to talk a little bit about, but certainly that is very different from sort of your classic, in particular, Silicon Valley, Bay Area company that thinks through growth in a very different way, thinks through profitability in a very different way. Profitability is something that will emanate later on. Product market fit is not always linked 
to profitability. It's actually in many cases rarely linked to profitability for its first stages. Yeah, and to be clear, some of this is still there. Some of this mindset is still there in Europe with some companies, some entrepreneurs. And again, it's totally okay. But typically, at least in tech, where competition is intense, that's not really how you can build world-class companies because there is a race when there is a new business model coming up, a new type of products coming up from all over the world to race to build the biggest companies, the most successful companies. And for that, typically, you will need venture capital to reach your objectives. So that has been an issue in the past. And I totally agree with you. I'm seeing companies who even today are bankers make big claims that, yeah, the company is profitable or will be profitable in six months. And I'm like, if you have a great business model, why would I care? I want you to move pretty fast and get more market shares. That's what matters. If your time is big enough, why would you keep investing in the business? So for me, we still have some interesting uh, discussion, but obviously it's changing. So I totally agree with your perspective. I think that one of the issues has been for entrepreneurs and VCs alike. It's some sort of, you know what, there is no real exit opportunities for me. I might find some seed capitals, some Series A capital, but beyond that, it would be tough to find growth capital to get very exciting exits in the billion-dollar range. So my expectation as an entrepreneur and VC is that the best I can do is sell this business for a 100 to $200 million valuation. And that's it. So I cannot over-accelerate. I cannot over-invest. I won't get investors to do more. And actually, by design, as a result, I'm building a business that might scale from my home country, but is actually just focused on scaling to Europe so that when the big tech companies in US or Asia need to expand to Europe, I will be the logical acquisition for them. And so my goal is just to be a small acquisition on the way of much bigger companies that are going to be global world leaders. And I think this mindset, both from an entrepreneurial perspective and from a VC perspective, has been changing dramatically. Now entrepreneurs realize that they can find growth equity and that exits might be much more interesting than they used to be. And maybe let's take again a step back into the past and understand some of the reasons why this was happening. On the entrepreneurial approach, the notion almost that you're saying, it's almost like there was no focus on the exit. There was a focus on sustainable businesses. And sometimes there was almost a ridiculous focus on unit economics more than anything else. Unit economics were more important sometimes than actual product market fit at scale. And as you said, I can make my money locally. I don't need to go to other markets. But then that's not a very significant type of product market fit in some ways. But if we look back on entrepreneurs and how they acted and who they were, they were normally older. And we've had this discussion before. Old versus young doesn't really necessarily make a difference. But what does make a difference is... They were older entrepreneurs. There were people that had gone through big corporations. There were people that had an idea to go to the next level. There were maybe people that were stable in their lives that decided, I am going to build my business. Obviously, there's exceptions to everything I'm saying, but they were probably more in that camp. The young entrepreneur is a more recent phenomenon of the last few years when being an entrepreneur became sexy, Silicon Valley expanded to the world, that mindset. You know, out of college, I will be an entrepreneur. That was not true in Europe, at least a decade ago. It was not cool. Oh, I can tell you, you know, myself 20 years ago when I started my own business during my engineering school during the last year, I was a total UFO. No one had done that in my school before. There was nothing to help me do that or to help me manage my workload for my studies or to organize. They were friendly enough, kind enough with me, but that was really outside of any normal situation, not only in my engineering school in France, but in most engineering schools in most European countries. That was totally atypical. Now, it's a world of difference. When I'm talking to my engineering school, people graduating there now, it's a totally different game. They have incubators, they have support, they have small pre-seed venture fund. Everything is there. It's just amazing difference. So point one is this profile of people, right? Point two that I would like to make around the entrepreneurial approach in Europe in the past is it was very much an entrepreneurial-focused approach to the market that in some ways felt like I will make this work and make this work in the market in the way that I know I can make money quickly. The problem in most of these markets, and if I look back at Portugal, our Gen 1 of big startups in the late 90s, 
it's you end up doing services rather than products. And so that whole mentality of services versus products was very entrenched in sort of entrepreneurial activity in Europe for a very long time. I wanted to sell to European Space Agency. I wanted to sell stuff to Siemens, to the big corporations. I wanted to fit into a value chain. And the problem with fitting into a value chain is you don't disrupt it. You play the game. And once you're part of a value chain, either you get acquired by the value chain or you get you know, killed by the value chain, your upside is almost limited by nature. And that, I don't think, was something that was very thought through time, in particular by governments and how they give incentives to companies. But it's sort of part of that old Europe in some ways in terms of entrepreneurial approach. The final piece I would highlight on the entrepreneurial approach, which is very important, and maybe it's a really good segue into the discussion on the old approach around investment in Europe, is the fact that you rarely had multiple startup entrepreneurs or what we call the classic multiple founder or the classic serial entrepreneur, as we call it in the US, the person that does startup after startup. I actually, if I had to go back and sort of look at one or two generations older than me, the only serial entrepreneurs that I know were people that did services businesses. And they normally did either complementary services businesses or they did a linear services business, where at some point they exited to a big service business that came into the country, again, very local approaches, and they started a new one on the side, or they found there was a new opportunity and they created a slightly different business on the side. Again, the problem with that, that we don't have a lot of sort of serial entrepreneurs, is related to two things. One is that then people would not go back into the market. We've talked about this in the past, what makes you know Silicon Valley work. We talked about it in our episodes around Silicon Valley. This notion of the insecure overachiever, that you lose your relevance in the market if you stop operating, if you're not there anymore, that didn't exist in Europe. And so what happened in some ways is people would do their money, they would pick up their little money, and they would move on with their lives and lead very nice lives. But two things would happen. They wouldn't start new businesses, and they wouldn't invest in new businesses. And so you would lose two things. You would lose the next company or the next startup, but you would also lose the angel investor. You wouldn't have the angel investor. Again, we know that's changing, but that's the old Europe. And if we look a little bit into a segue into the investment approach in Europe, that also links really well, I think, with the VC infrastructure, the growth equity infrastructure, and the private equity infrastructure in Europe. First of all, let's start with profiles. Who are the classic VCs in Europe and who are the classic investors in Europe? In the first instance, many of them came from investment banking. They were deal makers, right? And we, we have nothing against investment bankers, right? They're a significant part of our ecosystem. They have tremendous amount of value. But what that meant is they were very financially focused investors. And when you're a very financially focused investor in a late stage company, that's fine because you have P&Ls, balance sheets, you have very good decisions that you can make as a private equity investor, as a late stage investor, even as a growth investor to a certain extent, looking at unit economics. But if you're an early stage investor, very focused on financials, you have a huge problem because first of all, when you invest, there is none. Once there is some financials, you're going to start pushing for profitability very quickly when that's the wrong thing to push for. And number three, the experience you have is not really as an operator of companies, it's really as a banker. And as a banker, you are part of a service provisioning bracket of the market, which is a significant one, but it's not a builder of products. And it's definitely not a tech developer. So in some ways, I think Europe suffered a little bit early on from the fact that there was a lot of dependency in terms of talent from the banking industry into venture capital, even early stage venture capital, just because in some cases, these were the people that were the most capable people to raise funds from limited partners. They were the guys who had access to people to raise funds from. And so that made sense. They had access to capital and they started venture capital firms. Now, to be very clear, some of these venture capital firms today are exceptionally good. They're tier one, they compare to the best in the US, they actually compete in the US. But that was the beginning of venture capital. And that mindset, I think, is still percolating. If I had to say, oh, it's changed dramatically, of all the things we're going to be talking about, like exits, entrepreneurs, startups, probably the venture capital landscape in terms of talent is the one that is still changing in terms of mindset. In terms of profiles, it's changed a lot. But in terms of mindset, it's still changing a little bit slower than all the others. And that, for me, is a little bit disappointing.
I agree with all your points. I will rebound first on your last point concerning the background of investors in Europe. For sure, being an ex-entrepreneur or an ex-operator has been the absolute exception in Europe at nearly every stage of the investment cycle. Where in the US, you can see it's not true. You will see that, especially early stage, you see a lot of ex-entrepreneurs who understand entrepreneurs, who understand what it means to start a company, who have a good understanding of how you build a new market, how you disrupt new markets, and how you have to take risk in order to get rewards. So, of course, it's taking time for this to change in Europe because I would say that new generation of entrepreneurs, builders in Europe that are trying to build big and go big, I mean, it's still brand new. So they have not graduated yet from entrepreneurs to go on the investment side. So there are still too few of them in the investment side in Europe. And as you say, it's especially a bigger issue early stage or growth stage. At much later stage, pre-IPO, it's a different story. It might not be as needed in terms of background. So I agree with you. The service mindset has been a big one. And I think that right now, I still see that as an issue from the sense that when you see the teams that are being built in Europe, they have trouble to find people who have a true product background. Finding product managers, CEOs, who come from a mindset of building products, not building and selling services, is still pretty rare. So they are learning, they are trying, but it's not like in the US or China where finding some ex-product managers from Google, from Alibaba is relatively easy where it's going to start a company or that you are going to recruit to join your startup. In Europe, you have much less of this type of profile because this is the type of profile and work that is typically done at HQ. And having so few big tech companies headquartered in Europe, we don't have a lot of these product management profiles in Europe. Or if they exist, they are not focused on real tech products. That was not their background. And that's obviously... One issue European companies have to overcome, and it might be sometimes by bringing talent back from US and Asia who were from Europe and want to go back and now realize that, you know what, I might have the same opportunities back home. I don't need to stay in the US to work on interesting business and to have great financial opportunities. So I think that the good news is that it's changing. You could argue that with COVID, this migration back might have accelerated actually. So I'm quite hopeful on that side that we're going to solve that. And at this point, some of you might be thinking, well, but I know a few exceptions to everything you just said. And as I always say, rule is only really interesting if there are exceptions to it, because then there's a potential for arbitrage, as I always call it. And obviously, there are some great cases like Atomico, which was started by Nicholas Enstrom, who had done obviously Skype. There's a bunch of other great VC firms in Europe that were started with a very different approach by former entrepreneurs and have been around for a while and have changed a lot of the psyche, I think, of Europe. To keep on that, take Balderton, for instance, who is managed by Bernard Liotto from Business Objects fame, acquired by SAP for $7 billion. We have one of the firms I'm advising, Red River West, that has also been launched by ex-entrepreneurs. So I think there is a new wave, but as you say, it's the exception. Yes, and even Balderton, we'll come back to them later, was effectively the spawn of Benchmark. It was Benchmark Europe who turned into Balderton. So again, the approach came from somewhere else. All of this serve a little bit the past. We'll talk about the future in just a second. Just to finalize the framing on the past, because it's very important to understand why the present and the future will be potentially more optimistic, we are more optimistic about, and it's more interesting. We'll finalize with a topic that you, Bertrand, mentioned earlier, which is exits. And the typical exit in Europe was simple. It was either there was no exit, companies just gave dividends or they generated money for their owners, or they exited to the value chain that they were deeply embedded in. Many services businesses were bought as bolt-ons as many of the large service providers were expanding into different countries. And so that was their local sort of capability building play. Not a lot of IPOs. There were not a lot of IPOs. Obviously, we always had London Stock Exchange. There was the whole push with AIM, which you know I think was marginally successful. We'll call it like that. Obviously, several local stock exchanges in Europe, now part of Euronext. There was a lot of things that happened, but IPO wasn't a necessary condition to exit. It was normally a trade sales. It was normally to a larger company. In many cases, it was a company that was in your value chain. In many cases, it was also a company that might be already on your cap table. And so obviously that capped a little bit the exit size. 
and obviously it capped the upside for investors. So this became, again, a chicken and egg issue. In some ways, the exit potential is capped. So the size of the company and where it can go, it's capped. And so the money I'm going to put in the company is also capped. And for a long time, that's the reality we lived in. A few extraordinary companies were created along that way. I talked about SAP and maybe the words I used about its overnight success that took many decades. Maybe they weren't yes. very kind, but it is an amazing success for a European software company. Even at a certain point in time, they decided that they needed to have dual headquarters, right? Germany and Silicon Valley, because there was a need to go to the next level in terms of the points you were just talking about, product management, growth mindset, people that were maybe more specialized around certain areas around software. And it was difficult to find some of those skills in Europe, as well as the fact that many of their big clients were actually here in the US. So again, exits were limited. And IPO was not only not a given, as it was more of an exception than a rule. Yes, that was a tough place to be. And as a result, the whole ecosystem was organized around that. You didn't have a buildup in capital capacity and entrepreneurs were adjusting their expectations and were in a way cornering themselves. Around five, seven years ago, there was actually a few governments in Europe, because a lot of things are government-led in Europe, who started to realize it was a strategic issue for Europe. They cannot keep going that way. A strategic issue for a few reasons. As we just said, when just one U.S. tech company represents the total valuation of your top 30 or 40 biggest companies, you realize you have a real problem. You cannot <laughs> keep strategically running a country like this. It's also a problem in terms of job opportunities yeah, on the long run, of course, because then how do you make sure that your population is given the best opportunities if they cannot control their destiny step by step? So I think there was a realization that they needed to do something and to make sure that there is a better investment climate at every level of the food chain to support entrepreneurs and basically create an environment that's better for entrepreneurs. And also, I believe, especially coming from France, that... In the past, in France, being an entrepreneur, if you are making money, you were corrupt. If you are having a successful business, it could not happen without exploiting your workers. That was the mindset 10, 20 years ago in Europe, if you can imagine. And I think this mindset has dramatically changed. And I think it has come from multiple reasons, maybe just looking at how positive the change was from the US, thanks to all this entrepreneurial energy. But it has changed. And I think we will see that in the numbers. So there's been a dramatic shift as a result over the past few years. And I think it is factually correct to say that governments have been an incredible catalyst to all of this on all sides. Capital that's infused into the markets, that feeds sometimes even vehicles that feed startups directly, that feeds venture capital firms, European investment fund, local initiatives in almost every country. So capital is one, regulatory is another. How can you act? What sort of licenses do you need to act? And under which perspective do you need to act? Laws in general, labor laws were greatly made more flexible in many countries, Portugal, France. True. We have probably two of the worst countries in terms of labor law in Europe. And they've been made more flexible, not fully solved, but more flexible. Or much better. Much better. Creation and liquidation of a company have been made also much easier in many countries. So there's a lot of government intervention, I think, that's factually spot on. But also, and as we're changing a little bit more to the present... I think there was another effect over the last decade, which is Silicon Valley, I believe, has made itself more known to the world. And there's a couple of factors behind that. Some of them we've already talked about, sort of the new epic of venture capital, where you had VC firms that were traditionally very closed entities to entities that became branded, that had marketing, the Andreessen Horowitz's of the world, Mark Suster, and Upfront, all these guys publishing a bunch of information, Brett Feld publishing a lot of information around entrepreneurship and how should you negotiate stuff and all of that. So almost taking this into pop culture type access. Secondly, obviously journalism and other means of communication that have made this information much more accessible globally to everyone. There were huge asymmetries of information on how things were done and those asymmetries, but some of them still exist, but many of them have been mitigated over the years and that is a very powerful aspect of what happened. And I think all of these things together and then the creation of this mythology of companies that go from zero to a billion unicorns. Zero to one. This was edified around all these myths around Twitter and Jack Dorsey and Mark at Facebook and Sergey 
and Larry with Eric at Google. And all of this was made into pop culture in a way that it became totally news of the day and everyone consumes this. So my hypothesis has always been that it's not just a government-led piece, but also it became cool to be an entrepreneur because everyone saw there's something of an upside here that is incredible. And now I have more information about what it means. And I have more information on what venture capital is. And I have more information on how I should negotiate a deal. And I have more information on what it takes to go from one level to the other. And that was not there maybe two decades ago. So definitely that is a big shift. I agree with you. For sure, in the past, we still had the Bill Gates of the world, but they didn't totally make it to the pop culture the same way in Europe, at least. But I agree with you. The past decade has seen an opening up of information that was, in the past, more limited to a privileged few, either in Silicon Valley or more recently in Beijing, maybe. And thanks to the bloggers, the YouTubers. And I think that has made a dramatic impact. And also... The fact that you can work so much more easily remotely from Europe to US and vice versa, organizing your big international corporates all over the world. There has been a wide transfer of information to European HQ of Google, Facebook and others who started step by step to really invest and develop some products from Europe. So there has been a huge knowledge of transfer. So it's a pretty exciting time. And maybe you could argue that cloud computing has changed the game. Cloud computing has made it easier to start a company and especially by European standards, not to overinvest too much initially to be able to start relatively cheap on great foundations in order to scale a business step by step. And you could combine that maybe also with the rise of, at least in, in the B2B space, with the rise of SaaS, uh, software as a service, where suddenly the rules of the game are better understood quickly and actually are connecting quite well to a prudent but scalable and high growth approach to business. And in some ways, the, the scalability of businesses, everyone always used to make this joke that China, everyone was copycatting. It was just a copycat of a taxonomy. Honestly, Europe was exactly the same. The tech companies that were emerging were copying what the American companies were doing, but it was the worst of both worlds. They were copying what the Americans were doing and they were applying it to small markets, right? Where your largest market <laughs> was 60 million or 80 million, right? Like Germany's 18 million people, whereas China was copying for a market of 1.4, 1.5 billion people. That's significant. So in some ways, we always criticize China for this. But to be honest, a lot of the tech players in Europe were doing exactly the same at the smaller scale, because it's just the scale of the country was smaller, and that's life. And think about the rocket internet in Europe was a perfect example for that copycatting approach. They tried to go beyond Europe, to be fair to them. Not always successful there, especially in Asia. It was not always successful. They got some success in Asia. But yeah, you are totally right. It was the worst of both worlds, copycatting and small markets. But I would say now Europe is changing. Pick a company like Ledger, like uh, SoRare, I mean, it's totally innovating, best-in-class, world-class products. They have not copied anyone, and it's European, and it's hundreds of millions of investment and billion-dollar valuations. Take an, in another industry, buy now, pay later. You talk to people in the US, they will all talk about how a firm is great, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but guess what? Klarna is bigger, yes. much bigger. And that's led to a gold rush in some ways in Europe, in the, the current tech landscape in Europe of growth and venture funding that is beyond almost belief, certainly in the first half of 2021. And Bertrand, do you want to go a little bit into that? Yes, sure. What's for me exciting is that it's not just the growth of venture capital in Europe, which obviously is great. And it's great to see multiples. We're talking about four, five X growth in venture capital the past five years, maybe in Europe. But what's very important is that the share of venture capital globally in Europe is growing. So it has been moving from a single digit percentage of investment of venture capital globally going to Europe. We were talking about 13% in first half of 2019, 13%. Now we are talking about 20% of global capital being captured by European startups. And I think we start to get into the right numbers. And it's a much bigger pie, just to be clear, because the first half of yes. 21 has been silly in terms of venture capital investment around the world. So it's 20% of a much bigger pie. It's 20% of a much bigger pie, but for me, it's important that it's growing in proportion to the place of Europe in the world, in terms of GDP, in terms of population size, in terms of funding power, in terms of 
engineering talent, scientific talent. It was totally disconnected to where it should be. And I don't know where it will end up being, 25, 30%. At some point, it will slow down, obviously. But that's very exciting to see that because this stuff compounds. We might not see the consequence yet in terms of successful exits, IPO, acquisition. But definitely, there is a huge buildup of very successful companies in the private markets that are going to be more and more visible over the years and definitely in a decade. And we've had, obviously, a growing up in terms of funding across the table from very early stage to late stage, but obviously the late stage is commanding the big volume of investment. And, and we do think there's a, a huge attribution to that, right? So if we look at late stage venture series C and beyond, we're looking at a total of 41.4 billion piece of the pie into late stage investing out of a 59 billion piece of the pie. And this is for a first half of 2021 on European startups. So Again, it's a huge percentage of the capital is going to late stage, which is for us Series C and beyond. And to have a focus on a specific market, I happen to know well as a French market, the changes have been pretty insane. First, when you talk about France, when you talk about Germany, of course, you will be remiss not to talk about what happened with Brexit. Of course, Brexit has created fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or FUD, as we like to call it in the software space. I think initially... That was an acronym used to talk about Microsoft approach to the competition. But interestingly enough, that's something that played out because of Brexit. Suddenly, successful continental Europe companies were not seeing as the next step either to move HQ to the UK or to find UK investors. Suddenly it was, okay, we have to stay on our ground and we have to keep developing from where we are, find investors where we are. So that has created an opportunity for the French and German ecosystem to develop themselves faster. And what we have seen in terms of metrics, it's pretty insane. Huh? When we compare Q2 2021 versus Q1 2021, we're talking about 2x more fundraising in France. When we're comparing the first six months of 2021, they have raised nearly as much as for the full year of 2020. So we are talking about 2x year on year or quarter over quarter. This is pretty insane numbers. And we see also some very significant exit, actually, some IPO on Euronext. So it's more and more dynamic in terms of what's happening. And if initially early on during the pandemic, the rebound was not as fast as American companies, it has definitely happened in 2021, both in terms of financing, but also in terms of sales, revenues coming from Europe. Yeah, and what would you attribute that to? What were, in your opinion, the reasons for that to happen? Again, I think Brexit has made things clear that you don't just have opportunities in the UK. And I would say the royal path to grow in Europe is not anymore from a London headquarter. It can be from a Berlin headquarter. It can be from a Paris headquarter. Let's not forget that both UK and US, they have a huge talent issue. They are not making engineers anymore. They are importing engineers. They are not making them. It's not a problem in continental Europe. It's not a problem in France. It's not a problem in Germany. It's not a problem in Eastern Europe. It's not a problem in Russia, if I take an expensive view of Europe. And so that notion that you have to go to the UK or you have to go to the US to move headquarters, to fundraise, you know what? Actually, there are uncertainties in this world with Brexit and with COVID. But now, actually, we realize, no, we should be doubling down because we have an incredibly good situation for talent. It's also a talent that is not just very qualified, but that is also cheap these days related to the US, to China. So I think a lot of investors are realizing it's a great opportunity. And if you take France, for instance, I was looking at, I believe it was Q1 2021, all of the top five financing were from foreign investors, meaning investors from outside Europe. Four were Americans. One was from Asia, from Japan. And so my point is that I believe that we're also facing a situation where investors from outside the EU are realizing that there is an opportunity in Europe that was missed. And the good news about that is if there are opportunities for great startups to emerge, then venture capital firms and other investors will also become more focused. We know that the whole notion of very focused and specialized VC firms 
was not necessarily a part of sort of the status quo in Europe. So most funds were generalist and there's nothing wrong with generalist funds. But obviously, when you start having a lot of companies that do very well in the software as a service space, you start having funds that focus on software as a service. When you start having companies that do really well on the vertical SaaS or hardcore enterprise space, you start having funds that focus solely on that. When you start having companies that do really well in Industry 4.0, IoT, you start having funds that focus on that. And that's also part of the change in landscape that we observe in Europe. It's not just that we have more and more successful companies across the board, but also in areas where you start having critical mass, you start having the emergence of investors that focus on that area. And that is always very positive because then you have investors that understand your space, that understand what makes that ecosystem works, and also can give you more value in that specific space as well. And so for me, that is the cool part of the whole part of the equation, which is the whole ecosystem grows as one of the pieces starts becoming, I would say, more granular and more mature. And we've observed that in France. We've observed that, to be honest, almost across the entire European landscape and Germany, Scandinavia, even in my home Portugal, where I would say probably we're now a tier two country in terms of Europe, which is impressive for a country of our size. There's definitely a lot of things happening in that landscape that are very positive and the ecosystems become, as I said, more granular, more mature. And maybe to double down on the explanation, I think COVID was also another reason because initially COVID was a shock everywhere, maybe even bigger shock in Europe. Companies, people took more time to adjust maybe than in some other locations. But for me, what was interesting is that in a way, the regional investors in the U.S., become national investor in the U.S. thanks to COVID, quote-unquote, because they could suddenly invest remotely. And the national scale investors in the U.S. realize, in a way, thanks to COVID, why limit ourselves to the U.S. as our playground? Let's try and kick tires and invest in Europe or in Asia or in other places. And I think that has been a pretty dramatic shift. It's six or times on difference, but that's probably about it. We can have a video call pretty easily. And maybe another piece, I don't know for Portugal, but for France, I have seen a dramatic shift. People were not speaking very well English 20 years ago. These are younger people as well as older entrepreneurs, but now they do speak good English. The younger entrepreneurs or the older entrepreneurs. So doing business with Americans, with British firms has become much, much easier. So of course, it might come with issues. Because if suddenly you have a rush of foreign investors who don't understand European culture, French culture, German, or rules, regulations, how business is done, that might mean trouble down the line. There might be a disconnect between expectations on both sides. There might be misunderstanding. So I'm not saying it's all good, but it's definitely a big step in the right direction, I believe. It definitely is, and it has led to a, a really good momentum. I mean, you were talking about the speaking of English, Portugal has always been a, a highly benefited country because we never had dubbing. We always had subtitles. And so I'd say my generation, maybe one generation even older than mine onwards, everyone speaks really good English, which is almost shocking. Sometimes with a little bit of accent, but everyone speaks really good. It's one of the things we actually sell for foreign direct investment, etc., because we all speak really good English besides having amazing weather and and great engineering talent. Of course. Following sort of the example of the French system of engineering talent, and maybe as opposed to other countries that are a little bit more lax on what engineering actually means. And we've had obviously record fundraisers. You've talked about Ledger already. A lot of really good European companies raising a lot of money. We will talk about this movement of US into Europe in just a bit, but just focusing for a second in Europe itself and its companies, that also means that the valuations of European VC-backed companies have gone through the roof. And so the first six months again of 2021, there's been records broken across the board on stages of fundraising, which is also not very shocking. I have shared this with you, Bertrand, and we just did a couple of episodes on the bubble. I do think there's a little bit of a bubble. There might be too much capital also now allocated to Europe and to European-backed companies. We shall see where we will end up. In some ways, I'm now feeling there's almost in some markets more competition for deals in Europe than in the US or even in Silicon Valley, which is shocking. And valuations in some ways might be even more extreme or there might be more overvaluation in some companies in Europe than I can see even in the Bay Area, which is, again, super shocking. But certainly there is a positive signal to all of that, right? The positive signaling of a lot of players 
that are doing cross-market investment, German players investing in Portugal, French players investing in other parts of Europe, players investing in France. France was always, in some ways, felt always a little bit like an insular market, but it probably has outgrown that by now. So there's a lot of really positive signals. Obviously, the stable of unicorns that we're seeing in Europe now has gone through the roof as well, which, again, is a new factor and a very interesting factor. We are talking about 200 unicorns in Europe. From five years ago, it was maybe a handful from a handful to 200 unicorns in Europe in five years. That's incredible. And so all of that are very positive signals. We've talked a little bit about the French ecosystem. We know that the German ecosystem has been very strong. Berlin may be one of the core tier one cities in terms of investment in Europe. We won't belate too much on that. But again, just to finalize maybe painting this image of the landscape of startups in Europe, overall very positive. My final comment would be, I do feel there is a bubble. <laughs> I do feel there's a lot of overvaluation. I do feel there's a lot of companies raising money right now at different stages, not just late stage, but even in early stages that maybe in other circumstances wouldn't be able to raise, certainly wouldn't be able to raise at the valuations that they're raising with very little economics. So there's almost a shift to the contrary movement that I, we talked about the past where everything was about profitability, et cetera. Now it's, oh, your valuation is 25 million, but you're not making anything, right? There's no revenue. You're a SaaS company. You don't have almost any ARR and you were worth 25 million for reasons nobody really understands. So I think we might be getting too much of that counter movement, a bit the contrarian view. There will be a realignment. There's definitely something brewing here that's exciting for the landscape because you start having successes, you start having entrepreneurs that make good money and you start having entrepreneurs that then fuel that money back into the market as angels. Some of their early employees make very good money as well. One of the issues we didn't talk about is for a long time, actually having options in a startup that you work for was not valued. It was almost like, I just care about the salary, you pay me maybe a bonus, right? You gave me 1% of the company, I don't know what that means, right? In options. And even the option structures in many countries are very complex. So that is now changing as well as we start seeing people that have companies that are starting to do secondaries or selling or IPOing, where all of a sudden you have a bunch of millionaires overnight and people are like, whoa, wait a second, this is happening in Europe as well. It's not just a US thing. So all of a sudden that money not only is flowing back as angel investments or into new startups that get bootstrapped, but this notion of the option and of stock in a startup starts having a very different meaning. Yes, and I believe that's actually a true concern and obviously it's moving in the right direction. But if you look at a lot of European startups, it's still unfortunately very typical that only the founders have shares in the business, not even proposing any stock option plan to their teams or to have a very small stock option plan for exec, but no one else is in the stock option plan or really smaller stock option plans for employees. And I think that's a problem because competition is global, people will realize they didn't get what they should deserve, at least based on global peers. So I guess it will change, it will evolve, but it's still not where it should be. And in some countries like Germany, taxation of options, I believe is a huge problem today. And one final thing that I would like to talk about, you talked about engineering talent and the search for engineering talent. It is at some point limited. And in some ways, one of the things that is highly complex about this that does lead me to believe there is a bubble, there is maybe overvaluation, there's too much capital being thrown around, is you start seeing systematically engineers being paid more and more very quickly. In my home country, Portugal, I happen to be on the board of directors of a company there, and you see these cycles of people getting offered double their salary, double their salary to wow. stay exactly where they are. You don't need to move anywhere. Your cost of living stays the same. You just get paid double. And somehow my message, uh, certainly to the CEO of this company, is always the same, which is I cannot believe that's the true value of that engineer. And so the question, the fundamental question is, when will this stop? Because at some point there has to be a realignment, right? It can't be that we keep doubling salaries on a yearly basis because nobody can cover that. Not even Google can cover that. So at some point, something has got to give and capital maybe disappears and maybe we have the hard landing we talked in the last episode or the soft landing we had in the last episode, but things will need to contract or at least realign and become a little bit more stable for us to see that end view. But the fight for talent right now in terms of engineering is incredible. 
But in a way, I believe that engineers in Europe were too much of a great deal from a global perspective, seeing what's happening in US, in Asia. What was the latest? I heard that some starting salaries in engineering at Stripe now are beyond 200k. If you think about some engineers in Europe being paid 50k. But we're not talking 50k anymore, Bertrand. I mean, we're now talking about people that are getting paid, people that are three, four years of experience that are getting paid ridiculous amounts of money in Europe. I was talking about after school, but for me, I think that was too much a good deal. I think that the other piece again is that, especially in engineering in Europe, because Europe is not very remote friendly, even with COVID, surprisingly. But I think for engineering, this has changed in Europe over the past 18 months. And so what we see is suddenly a European level competition for engineering talent And it's even becoming a global level competition for engineering talent in Europe. I keep hearing about U.S. companies, no office in Europe, no real sales presence in Europe, hiring remote engineers and ready to pay U.S. level salaries. So I think we are having that competition from these 200 unicorns we just talked about who understand the value of getting the best engineers. It's not service business like before where they were not understanding the true value in a way of top engineers. And we are having this competition, at least from some US firms, to get global talent. COVID has really changed the rules of the game, especially in engineering and financing. At some point, people will start going back to Asia and finding other sources of talent in Asia, and then Latin America, and then Africa. In Africa, there's already been some interesting plays there as well. So anyway, there will be a truly global fight for engineering. Totally. I just feel that Europe was this weirdly disconnected market where it was just an amazing great deal for years and decades in terms of the quality of the talent, their availability versus their cost. So moving maybe to what we're seeing in terms of the U.S. movement into Europe, in particular the investment movement of U.S. into Europe. We've heard a lot of news, obviously Sequoia expanded into Europe. So the first movement that we're seeing of this investing from US to Europe is a couple of really big names like Sequoia expanding their activities into Europe. Actually, the latest announcement that we've heard about Sequoia having this meta fund structure on top, which a lot of people are like, what, what is that thing? And I was like, that's called a hedge fund, unless I'm mistaken. It's literally the definition of a hedge fund. It carries stuff in public equities and it carries stuff in this case in other private equity funds, which are the Sequoia VC funds. We won't talk about it today, but very interesting move. That fund covers both the US and Europe. It does not cover India or South Asia. It does not cover China for Sequoia, but it does cover Europe and the US. Again, that expansion is very interesting. Excel has been in Europe for a long time. And actually, of the big sort of, I would call tier one VC firms, it's been the one that I would say has probably been in Europe for a very long time. Benchmark had a play in Europe that became Balderton now, from what I understand, independent organization. We've had circuitous moves from the other side, like eVentures that have a strong presence in the US, but they were actually originally German. Used to be the former Bertelsmann capital guys, the BV capital guys. Now they changed name. eVentures is now Headline. Headline. So that's a great name. Great team. So now there's definitely a lot of VC firms where you would talk to Silicon Valley San Francisco-based VC firms that would say we only invest within sort of 30, 40 miles, then it was in the US and now everyone invests everywhere that they want. And in some ways, that's the exciting piece about this. We do have this movement of US investors being multi-region, looking at Europe, some of them actually even looking at Asia, investing there and, and pushing sort of the flow there. So there's definitely this view of the world that I feel someone that's been talking about being geographically agnostic for 10 or 11 years, like myself, now I feel vindicated. Now when I talk about it, people are like, yeah, of course. And 10 or 11 years ago, when I said geognostic, people are like, you're stupid. But apparently it wasn't stupid. It was maybe a bit ahead of its time. And it, it's leading to a lot of really interesting aspects. Like obviously, if we look at, and this is a stat that you shared with me, Bertrand, the top five deals in France, and you shared some of this earlier, by firms from outside of Europe, four from the US, one from Japan, you already shared this earlier, but four from the US, four from the US in France, in a market that had labor laws that were draconian to say the very least, where investors would just look at it as, nah, 
too difficult. I can't fire anyone, really. And so <laughs> all of a sudden, we have U.S. investors playing in France, right? That, for me, is always a test of commitment to the European market. Actually, that's very interesting what you just said, because I remember pretty vividly some feedback from either great entrepreneurs here in the U.S. or some great investors here in the U.S., and they were telling me how there is no way they would even have a subsidiary in France just because of all the labor laws and how they were scared about this. And just by principle, they would not agree and commit to that. And I'm talking about people who in some cases were really enjoying their vacations in France every year, <laughs> a month or two in the French Riviera, so very well connected to France, to the French culture. But when it was time to talk business, we're like totally against having any involvement in France. So as you say, the tide has changed. I think the reality is that on the ground, the reality has changed as well in France. As you say, it is more flexible. It is less crazy in terms of how the markets are working. So that has helped. But I think there is also a new generation coming up who doesn't have some old world view of Europe, but he's seeing Europe for itself now and how it has changed and not coming with too many preconceptions. And for example, we created Chameleon. So my latest firm, and as we discussed in the last episode, did a close this year on our latest fund. And our view from the beginning is that... Congrats again. Thank you. Our view was, although the center of gravity of it is definitely the U.S. and HQ is here in the Bay Area, and we do estimate that a significant portion of our capital is going to be deployed in the U.S., we estimate that the second largest bucket of capital is going to be deployed in Europe. And we have a significant office in Europe that actually in the end might likely be larger than the office here in terms of number of people. And the validity of it is, to your point, technical talent. We are a technically-led VC firm, so for us it was important to get technical talent of the highest quality, certainly with a value for money, part of the equation that it would be difficult to get in, in the Bay Area at this stage. It was interesting for us to look at companies in Europe because we see a lot of great activity in Europe. So I believe there's definitely a movement towards Europe. Some people disagree, though. Our friend Fred Wilson at Union Square Ventures, who disagrees. Yeah, it's interesting. I think he's pretty much the exception to the rule. He published an interesting blog on the internet, the globalization of venture capital investing and how they were doing more and more investment outside the US. But that, interestingly enough, where in the past decades, their non-US investment were mostly in Western Europe. That was not the case now since COVID. This meaning a lot of investment is now in Asia. So yes, I would say it's probably the exception, not the rule. And that's fine. I think that you have different theses all over the world. And I think, interestingly enough, he's explaining that because they are thesis-driven investors. So they know the thesis they want to support and they are looking for startups who are matching this thesis. And maybe in Europe, there is no growth on this thesis because they already invested in the companies that were following that. I don't know. Or simply because maybe actually Europe is leaving the copycat space and moving into new directions. Yeah. And honestly, I feel to your point that the European sort of ethos, the thing that makes Europe work has been grossly underestimated for many years, in particular around engineering prowess, right? We have truly amazing engineers in Europe. For a long time, the history in the US was around Chinese and Indian engineers who are also great. But there was somehow we forgot the European talent. And that's now coming to bear. Europe is a wonderful place to live in almost in every single country. So people don't actually need to move anywhere. So I feel there's a lot of conditions for that. That's what I was going to say. The view on the Bay was there are plenty of Indian engineers, of Chinese engineers in the Bay. They are great and they are just in front of you. And so you think about them and how great they are. But what you might be missing is that, yeah, you have as many talented engineers in Europe, but guess what? Actually, they don't want to move because they are perfectly happy where they are living. They are not focused on leaving their country. I'm not saying at any cost, but it's very different from a European perspective. Moving to the US is not a clear-cut value proposition for them. It's not just all benefits, there are a lot of negatives as well. Mm -hmm. And while some of the policies of immigration into Europe, even from outside Europe, have become much better, the opposite is, is also true, which is some of the immigration policies in the US have become much worse. So it's actually difficult to sometimes move to the US. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. 
Maybe let's move to our final topic and talking a little bit about the movement of businesses from Europe into the US and what's happening around that. I believe there are big changes in your approach to expand your business from Europe to US, especially thanks to two factors. One is the availability of more financing and two, the rise of the remote work, especially being accelerated through COVID. What it's creating is the fact that you might be able to be more successful faster in the US even without a team. You don't need to move to Silicon Valley anymore to move all management to Silicon Valley. You might be able to stay in Europe to develop your management team to talk to clients in the US. If you need to go to the US, maybe you can consider more easily New York. New York was, of course, always preferred for European companies because it's closer, faster, less time zone difference. But at the same time, there were less investment opportunities when you move headquarters in New York versus the Bay. So it was not always an obvious choice. New York as a destination is becoming definitely more attractive than it used to be. Or I would say probably anywhere in the East Coast. I would say on the New York side, I've been very impressed by a few tweets from the new mayor of New York. It's definitely a change of tone. Someone who is excited to bring entrepreneurs, to bring companies to New York, to bring crypto back to New York, as if he's trying to challenge the mayor of Miami, who has been very famous, <laughs> to bring entrepreneurs and crypto to Miami. So I'm very excited to see that because, to say the least, the previous mayor of New York, Bill de Blasio, was definitely not startup tech-friendly. There is this movement from Europe to the US, which has been going on for a bit. Silicon Valley, I believe, is still the obvious choice, but we might disagree <laughs> on that. We've had a debate on this before. To your point, Bertrand, I, I actually just helped out a company because of a couple of very close and good friends expanded to the US and the founding team is actually moved to Seattle. So you'll be happy to know that. It had something to do with one of their lead investors in the last round. So I'm not going to just give you that, but okay, yeah, they're going to Seattle. Definitely the big cities are still commanding the movement in terms of, in particular, people for core business positions, in particular, if you're the CEO or the CEO or one of the officers of the company a New York, certainly a San Francisco Bay Area, Seattle, there's sort of obvious choices here. People are thinking a little bit more outside of the box when they're thinking of expanding, for example, their sales and marketing positions. I've certainly worked with a couple of European companies that are now very much looking at areas that in the past were not cool, but are become interesting. Obviously, Georgia, the Great Atlanta area, and a few others. Utah, the capital of customer service and a bunch of other areas. And everyone already knew it in the US, but now the European guys have taken notice as well. Anyway, there's a lot of interesting things, I believe, happening in this expansion debate. And it's become easier. I think I'm seeing really more and more remote-first approach to America, meaning that some startups are starting to sell in the U.S. from Europe, but also when they go to the U.S., they don't have a regional headquarters anymore. They are hiring anywhere in the U.S. teams that are going to be fully remote. No one would have thought about this two years ago, especially from Europe, but now I've seen that more and more. For me, it's a tale of two sides. I'm on the board of companies in the US, in Europe, and in Asia, so I'm very blessed to see a little bit the cross-sections of how people think and how they expand. With European companies, one piece of advice I give is sometimes it's easier to do inside sales and sell remotely to the US than to Europe, right? Even if you don't have US presence, which is shocking. Yeah, true. Because a lot of people in the US are more open to inside sales. They're more open yeah. to the debate. They're more open to the demo, and then we'll see. And sales processes in many cases are faster. To your point, they're more transactional. The second side of the equation is it's sometimes or almost all the times very difficult to understand the language and the way of actually pushing in the US if you don't have some connectivity to the US. And so what unavoidably happens is either you start hiring some people in the US or one of the core people on the founding team or on the executive team moved to the US. One mm -hmm. of the first investments we did at Chameleon The CEO packed her bags, moved to the Bay Area. All the entire team was in Europe, engineering, science team, etc. And she was by herself in the Bay Area and COVID started. <laughs> so I was like, it was a really good time for this. And she started selling in the US and she started selling to companies in the Bay Area. And magically enough, their whole traction story moved from very small deals in Europe to significant deals in the US. And it was one person, literally. I mean, it was the founder CEO, just 
backpack bags went there. And I've seen a couple of other companies that are following a similar playbook. So again, I think it's a tale of, of two sides. One, I do think it's easier and it's more transactional to sell in the US even remotely. On the other hand, at some point, you probably need to have some presence or some focus on the US to a certain extent. To be clear, I'm not talking about not having a presence. I'm talking about not having a headquarter in a specific location in the US anymore. Another trick I have seen is some companies hiring Americans based in Europe to sell to Americans in the US. So obviously it runs into scalability issues, but it might be a great ramp up to having your own team of Americans in America because this team of Americans in Europe will be easier probably to manage culturally initially. So I think that's a different way to approach the problem. Another piece, because you hit it, it's absolutely true. A lot of European companies don't realize how much time it takes to sell in Europe versus selling in the US. It can move much faster. And not just it moves faster, the checks are bigger. You are getting bigger checks. So what your entrepreneur discovered moving to the US, spending more time in the US, That's exactly what happens typically in the US. You have bigger opportunities and it closes faster. After that, it can churn faster as well. There is less relationship. There is more openness to try something new. So it's not all rosy and perfect, but there are some significant benefits to put more efforts to expand in the US, especially if you have a very virtual product, a very digital product, something that don't need to be adapted too much to local culture needs or regulation. And to close the conversation or the loop on this conversation, so to speak, the beautiful and magical thing is if you start having sales in the US, if you start having teams in the US, if you start having access to the market in the US, guess what happens? You become visible to players in the market that might acquire you. And we go from that entrenched value chain, small sale in Europe to a potentially large sale in the US to some company. You go from the maybe subpar IPO in Europe to potentially a flagship IPO, New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ in the US. And all of a sudden, we've gone from a company that might be worth $100 million to a company that might be actually worth a billion in a much faster ramp up. Totally true. I feel that's the exciting part. And for me, what would be even more exciting is when maybe in a decade from now, your exit to a big, successful tech company in Europe is possible as well as an availability of a true tech IPO market in Europe. That way, we don't need to do that extra contortion to have to sell yourself to the American companies or American investors. But I'm not saying it should stay totally in Europe. It will be based on what are the opportunities, what's the best strategy for your company. But at least you won't be forced to have to go outside Europe for these exit opportunities. But it's already very exciting that now I believe there will be more exit opportunities in the US at significant valuation, not just an exit opportunity because you are the local European company opening you the door of the European market. No, an acquisition or an exit because you are a very successful company on a global scale on your own terms. So as a wrap-up, the tone is optimism on the tech ecosystem in Europe, on the investing venture capital, growth, private equity, ecosystem in Europe. A moderate optimism in the sense that there might be, at least one of us thinks there is a bubble. I agree, there is some overrating. There is some overrating. So the overvaluation, there is maybe a bubble there already. But certainly on this note, a note of optimism, a full agreement with Patrick Collison as that controversial first statement of saying, you know what, I think there's a lot of reasons for optimism Maybe we should talk a little bit more about them. You can check the latest on our website, decipheredshow.com. You can connect with us on Twitter at bschmidt and at ngpedro. As a disclaimer, these are our own opinions. We're not representing the views of any company. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe, give us five stars, or leave a review on Apple Podcast app or your favorite app which will help other people to discover Tech Decipher. Thank you for listening. See you next time.